This is Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see Him more clearly, love Him more dearly, and follow Him more nearly. Hello, Warren. Hello, Ian. So we're continuing uh, to look at incidents in the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Yes, very fascinating. So I just want to remind you that the writers in the Old Testament did not know about the devil. Mm -hmm. And so all supernatural events were credited to God, good or bad. Yes. And then Jesus came and revealed the heart of God to us. Mm -hmm. uh, The prophets never really got it right. Yeah. So Jesus had to come himself and reveal God's heart. And we talked about that with looking at Hebrews last time, that basically that's what the writer of Hebrews says. So today we're looking at the the walls of Jericho and Joshua. Mm -hmm. And the walls fell down. Yes. Yeah. So um, this story apparently makes a watertight case for God killing his enemies. It's certainly a story that when people read it, it's, it seems very clear that yeah. God has done this. Yes. So yeah. um, there's some interesting twists to the story that invite us to read it again. Um, some of these are, uh, what was God's war plan or strategy for the Israelites? Right. Um, and uh, who is the mysterious commander in chapter 5? who uh, permits Joshua to worship him, mm-hmm. but uh, apparently is quite impartial. And then why did the Israelites not use the marching method against the other cities they needed to conquer since it was so successful with Jericho? Mm-hmm. True. And then uh, was Achan the only one who kept loot? Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> it's the only one we know about. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And then what about the destruction of Achan's family, uh, his wife or wives and children, donkeys? Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that. And then what part does scapegoating play in this whole story about conquering Jericho? Okay. So, so we've got our uh, work cut out for us. Yes, we're covering a lot today. So I'd like us to read the story in the Message Bible, uh, starting with chapter 5, verse 13, and we'll go through to the end of 627. So uh, why don't you do that? Starting at verse 13. Chapter 5. And then this, while Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw right in front of him a man standing, holding his drawn sword. Joshua stepped up to him and said, Whose side are you on, ours or our enemies? He said, Neither. I'm commander of God's army. I've just arrived. Joshua fell face to the ground and worshipped. He asked, What orders does my master have for his servant? God's army commander ordered Joshua Take your sandals off your feet. The place you are standing is holy. So So, Joshua did. So I just want to pause there for a Mm -hmm. minute. uh, 
So there's lots of interesting things here. Joshua wanted him to say, I'm on your side. Right. Well, and doesn't he kind of assume that he's on his side when he realizes that it must be God? He, I mean, he says, the man says, I'm, um, I'm the commander of God's army. Yes. But so, uh, when yeah. Joshua asks, whose side are you on? Oh. He says, neither. True. Oh, that, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. So I would have really been unhappy about that if I was Joshua. Yeah. yeah. And then this thing about take your sandals off reminds us of uh, Moses at the burning bush. Mm -hmm. So, and Joshua worships him and the, this army commander doesn't uh, stop him like angels usually mm -hmm. stop humans. Right, yeah. So you're right. suggesting this is Jesus. Yeah. Well, whoever appeared to Moses. Yeah. Same yeah. person. Right. And this being loves the people of Jericho just as much as he loves the Israelites. That's mm. why he says neither. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll come back. To right. This. Okay. Yeah. We're going to keep reading Good point. chapter 6. Okay, Jericho chapter 6, verse 1. Jericho was shut up tight as a drum because of the people of Israel. No one going in, no one coming out. God spoke to Joshua, Look sharp now. I've already given Jericho to you, along with his king and its crack troops. Here's what you are to do. March around the city, all your soldiers. Circle the city once. Repeat this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the chest. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times, the priests blowing away on the trumpets, and then a long blast on the ram's horn. When you hear that, all the people are to shout at the top of their lungs, the city wall will collapse at once. All the people are to enter, every man straight on in. Okay, so I want you now to drop down. Um, uh, to verse 15. When the seventh day came, they got up early and marched around the city this same way, but seven times. Yes, this day they circled the city seven times. On the seventh time around the priests, uh, on the seventh time around, the priests blew the trumpets, and Joshua signaled the people, Shout, God has given you the city. The city and everything in it is under a holy curse and offered up to God. Except for Rahab the harlot. She is to live, she and everyone in her house with her, because she hid the agents we sent. As for you, watch yourselves in the city under holy curse. Be careful that you don't covet anything in it, and take something that's cursed, endangering the camp of Israel with the curse and making trouble for everyone. All silver and gold, all vessels of bronze and iron are holy to God. Put them in God's treasury. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to drop down to the last verse now. Verse 27. God was with Joshua. He became famous all over the land. Okay, so we've left out a few verses in the interests of time. Mm -hmm. So here are some verses that indicate what God's uh, war plan or strategy was for the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Exodus 14, 13 to 14. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will bring 
you this day. For as sure as you see the Egyptians now, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, so hold your peace. So the Egyptian army was the most powerful army in the world at that time. Right. So now it's interesting um, what the Israelites had to do uh, to combat the, the best army in the world at this mm -hmm. time. According to this verse, the Lord is going to fight for them, so they had to be quiet and watch mm -hmm. what he's going to do. So mm -hmm. we know what happened with the, uh, the sea that they crossed. Mm -hmm. and then uh, when the Egyptian army tried to cross, um, the water came down on them and mm -hmm. they were all destroyed. Mm -hmm. So here's another verse, Exodus 23, 27. And I will send my terror before you and throw you into and throw into confusion all the peoples whom you find in your path. Okay. So God's going to go ahead of them. Exodus 33, 2. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A lot of ites that are going to be driven out. Yeah, there. but God's going to do this. An angel. So or an angel. An angel to do it. Yeah. Okay, why don't you read Exodus 34, 10 and 11. The Lord said, Here and now I make a covenant. In full view of all the people, I will do such miracles as has never been performed in all the world or in any nation. All the surrounding peoples shall see the work of the Lord, for fearful is that which I shall do for you. Observe all, my com all I command you this day, and I, for my part, will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Okay, so... Um I'm going to skip Deuteronomy 1, 29 to 33, and go to Deuteronomy 7, 17 to 19. You may say to yourselves, these nations outnumber us. How can we drive them out? But you need have no fear of them. Only remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and the whole of Egypt. The great challenge which you yourselves witnessed, the signs and portents, the strong hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. He will thus deal with all the nations of whom you are afraid. So God made all these promises to the Israelites, and he also made good on them. Mm -hmm. So we'll read a few of those verses. Um, but the biblical record clearly demonstrates that when people trusted in God's protection by living in obedience to his commands, they were protected from all their enemies in the most remarkable way. So here are some of the verses which indicate this. Genesis 35, verse 4 to 5. So they handed over to Jacob all the foreign gods in their possession and the rings from their ears, and he buried them under the, hmm, some kind of tree, Terabith tree near Shechem. Then they set out, and the, tree, and the cities around about were panic-stricken, and the inhabitants dared not pursue the sons of Jacob. Okay. Joshua 6.20, So they blew the trumpets, and when the army heard the trumpet sound, they raised a great shout, and down fell the walls. That's we're speaking of Jericho. And why don't you read Judges 7? 
The three companies all blew their trumpets and smashed their jars, then grasped the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood where he was all around the camp, and the whole camp leaped up in panic and fled. And it turned out that these uh, people started killing each other. Yes. Uh, so that's what happened there. Um, then in Joshua 10, verse 11, as they, uh, this is the attackers of the Gibeonites, were fleeing from Israel down the pass, the Lord hurled great hailstones at them out of the sky all the way to Ezekiel. More died from the hailstones than the Israelites slew by the sword. So um, there's a most remarkable story in Second Chronicles 20. Uh, will you read from verse 20 to 23? So they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they were sta starting, Jehoshaphat took his stand and said, Hear me, O Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Hold firmly to your faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will prosper. After consulting with the people, he appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise the splendor of his holiness as they went before the armed troops. And they sang, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As soon as their loud shouts of praise were heard, the Lord deluded the Ammonites and the Moabites, and the men of the hill country of Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. It turned out that the Ammonites and the Moabites had taken up a position against the men of the hill country of Seir and set themselves to annihilate and destroy them. And when they had exterminated the men of Seir, they savagely attacked one another. So the dread of God fell upon the rulers of every country when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel and the realm of Jehoshaphat was at peace, God giving him security on all sides. So this is weird strategy for going to war. Mm -hmm. You take your choir instead of your armed men. Right. You teach your armed men to sing. Right. They become the choir. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think if I'd been in that situation, I'd probably had a machine gun under my robe. Mm -hmm. Under your choir robe. Yes. Three times a year, all the Israelite men would go up to the feasts in Jerusalem. During this time, the Lord protected their houses and lands from hostile surrounding enemies. And this protection and leading of God is clearly recognized in Psalm 44, verse 3. It was not our father's words that won them the land, nor their arm that gave them the victory, but thy right hand and thy arm and the light of thy presence, such was thy favor to them. So, First um, Chronicles 28 indicates that David was not permitted to build the temple because he was a man of blood. Mm -hmm. So, if it was God's will or design for David to be involved in so much death and destruction and blood, starting with the way he responded to Goliath, then it's hardly fair for God to later reject David's desire to build the temple because he was a man of blood. It's like almost God was encouraging him along the way, mm -hmm. giving him victory at every turn. 
It is rather that God's temple, his dwelling, can never in any way be associated with force, since the government of God is based on free choice and love. Compelling force is not part of his rule, and God risked the disappointment of one of his dearest friends to make this point. So, having talked about, you know, God's plan and his strategy for um, conquering the land, let's talk a little bit about these scriptures. Let's talk about this commander in chapter 5 of Joshua, um, who doesn't take sides. Uh, as you've suggested already, this army commander from heaven, or this commander of heaven's armies, must be Jesus Christ himself, because he accepts the work, uh, worship of Joshua and tells him to remove his shoes, mm -hmm. which was the way of indicating that he was on holy ground and he was worshipping God himself. What shall we make of this? We can only conclude that God loves both the Israelites and the people of Jericho. We may also conclude that this angelic commander was not going to destroy the people of Jericho. He had purer motives and nobler missions than getting involved with the war between the Israelites and the inhabitants of Jericho. I don't know what else, what other conclusion to come to mm -hmm. because of this being's response to Joshua's query, whose side are you on? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's just neutral. So are you suggesting that it wasn't that commander's desire for the people to go in and kill everyone just that the walls would collapse they would recognize the the power of the god that that the israelites served and then they could have decided to follow god just like rahab did as you know they were given seven days mm -hmm. to think seriously about uh, their possibilities mm -hmm. uh, and those seven days were an act of of mercy. Of grace. Yes. To, and did, did Rahab evangelize the city? Mm -hmm. We don't know. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like there was a good response to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let's talk about marching around the city. Uh, I don't think the Israelites believed um, that this was the best way to capture cities, mm -hmm. even though it was so spectacular and dramatic and mm -hmm. convincing, mm -hmm. because they never used it again. Right. So I'm, what do you think about that? They never well, used it yeah, it's, it's very curious, because you'd think they would have headed off to AI and done the exact same thing, yeah. because it was so successful the first time. Yeah. And the people were not to participate in the destruction of the walls, since this was to be done supernaturally. No. The fall of the city was not to be to their credit, and they were not to benefit from its fall. Mm -hmm. They were not to take any of the loot. Mm -hmm. uh, the valuables from the city were to go to the sanctuary for the Lord. So there's a parallel to this in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. Mm -hmm. So Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem's walls and the burning of the temple. Mm -hmm. uh, remind you that Jericho's walls fell down and it was burnt mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So they're, they're good 
parallels here. So Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 22, uh, verse 1 to 7. If you'll read that for us, please. Jesus spake to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his sons, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So at face value, this parable means that God's going to get angry. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to, I mean, Jesus is talking about Jerusalem. Mm. So God is going to come and kill the inhabitants of Jerusalem and burn their city. For rejecting Jesus. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now this happened. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't God inspired. So like, did God raise up the Romans uh, and help them uh, develop their machines of war? and their strategies so that they could turn them all against Jerusalem? Unlikely. I mean, the Roman emperors were some of the most despicable rulers you can think of. You can think of Nero, who burned down part of Rome and then blamed it on the Jews so he could persecute them. Um, he wanted to rebuild the city, mm -hmm. make fame for himself. So, but you, you can't say with any clear conscience that God actually raised up the Romans and inspired them to come and destroy Jerusalem. Those mm -hmm. are wicked acts mm -hmm. motivated by greed mm -hmm. and a lust for power and control over other people. Mm -hmm. So why does Jesus tell the parable like that? Because at that particular point in his ministry, he's trying to enforce the idea that people need to choose uh, to be believe in him and uh, choose him as their savior. Mm -hmm. That's the point of the parable. Uh, and the other uh, details was what the culture they were used to. Mm -hmm. That's what a king did with right. a rebellious city. So, And had they listened to him, had the city accepted him, then Rome probably wouldn't have come to destroy the city. No, they, they wouldn't. Uh, God would have protected the city. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to know the theology of Jesus, uh, you can't look at uh, the details in the parables. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he tells the story about the rich man and Lazarus, and evidently the rich man can talk to Lazarus, and Lazarus can take a cup of water mm. uh, to the rich man, and so you can't base your theology of the afterlife on that parable. Mm -hmm. He's making a point in the parable that even though someone rises from the dead, unbelievers will not believe. Yeah. Unbelievers do not believe because of miracles. Mm -hmm. It's a very mm -hmm. interesting concept. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so even though he references the king was enraged, and you think it's referencing God, he's really talking about uh, the Romans coming with an army that will eventually destroy Jerusalem because of their, yeah. uh, just because that what was happening in the time. Yeah. So the city, the inhabitants were murdered, killed, and uh, the city was destroyed, was burnt. But the causative agent was Rome, mm -hmm. not God. Mm -hmm. But even Jesus' parable categorically says the king is going to do so. Yeah. So there's a very interesting uh, story in Second Chronicles 28. Um, so I just want us to read at least a few verses of this. Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He didn't live right in the eyes of the Lord. He wasn't like all his ancestors, so he wasn't at all like his ancestor David. Instead, he followed in the track of Israel in the north, even casting metal figures, figurines for worshiping the pagan Baal gods. He participated in the outlawed burning of incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, and incredibly indulged in the outrageous practices of passing his sons through the fire, a truly abominable thing he picked up from the pagan gods had early, the pagans God had earlier thrown out of the country. He also joined in the activities of the neighborhood sects and religion shrines that flourished all over the place. Okay, so now I want us to catch what it says in verse 5. God fed up, handed over to the king of Aram, who beat him badly and took many prisoners to Damascus. God also let the king of Israel loose on him, and that resulted in a terrible slaughter. Pekah, son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 in one day, all of them first-class soldiers, and all because they had deserted God, the God of their ancestors. Furthermore, Zikri, an Ephraimite hero, killed the king's son, Messiah, Akariam, then the palace steward, and Echaniah, second in command to the king. And that wasn't the end of it. The Israelites captured 200,000 men, women, and children, besides huge cartloads of plunder they took to, that they took to Samaria. So this is the, the northern kingdom, Israel, that's plundering Judah, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Right. Uh, I mean, it's horrific mm -hmm. what they're doing to them. Yeah. So read verse 9 to 11. God's prophet Obed was in the neighborhood. He met the army when it entered Samaria and said, Stop right here where you are and listen. God, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah and used you to punish them. But you took things into your own hands and used your anger, uncalled for and irrational, to turn your brothers and sisters from Judah and Jerusalem into slaves. Don't you see that this is a terrible sin against your God? Careful now. Do exactly what I say. Return these captives, every last one of them. If you don't, you'll find out how real anger, God's anger, works. 
Okay, so uh, drop down to verse um, 21. Um, I'll just read it here. Arrogant King Ahaz, acting as if he could do without God's help, had unleashed an epidemic of depravity. Judah, brought to its knees by God, was now reduced to begging for a handout. But even the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, wouldn't help. He came instead and humiliated Ayers even more by attacking and bullying him. So all the humiliation and the tragedy that befalls Judah because of their unfaithfulness under Ayers is attributed to God punishing Judah mm -hmm. for their unfaithfulness. Uh, but God didn't raise up Aram and Assyria and Israel and Edom and Philistia to raise Judah, mm -hmm. to raid Judah. I mean, imagine God's inspiring all the enemies of Judah to come and attack them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that works for you. Is that legitimate? Uh, well, the, but that's often what we've thought yeah. is that God sends these other countries to punish his people because they've wandered away from him. So in an indirect way, it's true in the sense that when we are unfaithful to God, when we break our covenant with him, we force him away mm -hmm. because he respects our choices. Mm -hmm. And when he's forced away, uh, we lose our protection from the devil mm -hmm. and from our enemies who are motivated by greed and wickedness, as we are sometimes. Mm -hmm. But to blame this on God, so why does the writer do this? Because this, this, how can God's chosen tribes of Judah and Benjamin experience all this trauma? For, for the writer, it's, uh, it's supernatural. Mm -hmm. And so because the writer doesn't know about the devil, he attributes all this trouble uh, to God, mm -hmm. that God's bringing upon them because of their unfaithfulness. So we, we back again to the, the blessings and the curses. If you uh, are obedient and faithful to me, I'll bless you. If you're not, I will curse you. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't talk like that today. Mm -hmm. We say things like this. If you follow God and obedient to him, blessings will come to you. Mm -hmm. But if you refuse to follow him and you're unfaithful to him, there are terrible consequences to that mm -hmm. in, the, in the very nature of reality mm -hmm. and also because you expose yourself to the devil mm -hmm. by forcing God away. And the consequences are more inherent in the situation uh, and not God saying, oh, I'm going to punish that person because they're not doing what I want them to do. Yeah. Who supernaturally pushed the walls of Jericho over? So that's, that's really the, the question because people use this story and they say, well, look, uh, God told Joshua, this was the process, you march around and then you blow the trumpets and mm -hmm. give a shout after mm -hmm. marching around seventh times on the seventh day and the walls will fall down. Mm -hmm. We've got this impartial commander. We've been through examples of how uh, Old Testament writers say that God 
destroyed the city. Jesus even tells a parable that the king, who is his father, is going to come and execute the inhabitants of Jerusalem and burn the city. We've looked at that. Even though this is directly stated by the writers of the Old Testament and by Jesus himself, mm -hmm. we know historically that what happened was that God did not prevent the enemies of Judah from attacking, making slaves, and, and so on, of Judah, mm -hmm. his, his precious two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Mm -hmm. So you have to deal with this. You can't just take uh, the instructions to Joshua and say, well, that's normative for me. Mm -hmm. Because you've got so many places in the Bible where it says God did something that he clearly didn't do. Mm -hmm. And we can look at other incidents like this. So who pushed the walls down? Mm -hmm. I'm suggesting to you that the devil pushed the walls down. Well, why would the devil push the walls down uh, if God had predicted it? Because he loves to destroy God's creation. Mm -hmm. And when the walls are pushed down and all the people of Jericho are destroyed... He, he really blackens God's reputation as a God of love. So why did Joshua say that God was going to do it? Because when God makes a prediction, Joshua, and it's supernatural, the outcome's mm -hmm. going to be supernatural, mm -hmm. Joshua concludes that God's going to do it because yeah. he doesn't know about the devil. Mm -hmm. So God says to him, look, do this, and the walls will fall down. Mm -hmm. and, and Joshua, in his head, understands that to mean, do this, and God is going to push the walls down. Mm -hmm. And if the devil pushes the walls down, in first glance, it thinks you think, well, that was really convenient. And yet, like you said, by doing that, he makes it look like and is recorded as something that God does, so that messes with our understanding of who God really is. That if, if, if necessary, he will use force to, to be able to bring about what he wants to have happen. Yeah, he's very clever, you know. Yeah. And uh, sometimes we're a bit naive um, when we think of the devil and how clever he really is mm -hmm. and how he can turn an incident uh, caused by himself and have God take all the blame. Yeah. I mean, it's devilish. Oh, yeah. Which is why we say it's devilish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. So the people of Jericho were God's creation, and their destruction brought great pain to God's heart. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about this already, but the devil made sure that God was blamed for the destruction of the city. And so his propaganda against God... Uh, being a compassionate being was advanced. He, he didn't want God to be seen as a compassionate being. Mm -hmm. And this shows God to be very vindictive against his enemies and very cruel. Yeah. And interestingly fits in with the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so in John 8.44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He uses deceit and the violence of killing people. Starts out with Cain, 
well, Adam and Eve in terms of deceit, but the actual murder uh, that Cain murders his brother Abel, the first two people born on this earth, one murders the other one. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot come to grips with that. It's just too stark and ugly and horrible. For it to degenerate so quickly. So quickly. To, to murdering someone. Yeah. So the wickedness of the people of Jericho had forced away God's protection. And the devil was delighted to step in and destroy them because mm -hmm. he brought pain to God's heart. So let's talk about Achan and uh, his uh, taking some of the loot. So now, in the history we have of the Israelites, uh, we know them to be rebellious, mm -hmm. ungrateful, deceitful. It's almost impossible to believe that Achan was the only one who took something from Jericho. No, now, as you mentioned earlier, he's the only one we know about. Right. But can you imagine the horror uh, knowing that you'd taken something and they're casting these lots mm -hmm. and it passes your tribe. What a relief. What a relief. Mm. Uh, it comes down to Achan and uh, he's selected as the guilty one. Mm -hmm. And uh, the loot uh, is found in his tent. Uh, he's executed. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that next. Uh, but what's interesting is after the fall of Jericho, the uh, policy on loot is changed. Mm, really? Like, uh, you can uh, read this in, um, I believe it is Joshua 8, verse 2. Joshua 8, verse 2. You will destroy them as you destroyed Jericho and its king. But this time, you may keep the plunder and the livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the town. Okay. So you see the change in the plunder. Right. Yeah. This is the next the town next, that they go the to. next town. Yeah. So only the first town. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not allowed to keep it. Uh, now, you can argue, well, that's because God... Well, the devil pushed the walls down and they didn't do anything, so mm. they don't deserve any plunder. <laughs> Whereas at Ai, they had to fight, and so mm -hmm. now they can have some mm. plunder. But there's another possibility, and that, that the reality of the situation that people were actually taking plunder, mm -hmm. um, and that's just being realized now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So story. I want you to read also Joshua 7, 10 to 12. And notice that this is written in the plural. But the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, but have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Okay, so do you notice it's written that Israel 
they yeah. have done this, and they have done that, and that's right. why they are running. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't say they're running in ignorance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew they were guilty. Mm-hmm. And we only have the story of one person. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this, this idea that when Aiken is pointed out, that they kill Aiken, his wife or mm-hmm. wives, and all his children, even his livestock. Yeah. But now if you go along to uh, Ezekiel 18, it says mm. that the, the son is not to be punished for the father's sin. Right. So what's going on here? Um, why the change of policy? Um, earlier on in Israel's history, they're killing everybody mm-hmm. uh, who's associated with the offender, perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And then later on, the later prophets say, no, that's not fair, that's not just. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what's happening, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. When uh, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and he survives and Darius comes the next morning and he finds that God's protected Daniel, then he turns around and he throws all Daniel's accusers with their wives and children into the lion's den. Mm-hmm. So this is clearly a cultural practice. Yeah. That the, there's a community punishment. Mm-hmm. It's not the extended family. Uh, you know, everybody's punished. Mm-hmm. Whereas by the time you get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they've moved beyond that. Yeah, there's a progression yes. of, of away from the culture of, of the area yeah. to what God was saying, no, that shouldn't happen. Yeah. So um, let's talk about Achan as a scapegoat. Now, a scapegoat uh, is somebody who draws out the, the punishment um, that's due to everybody, um, that one... Uh, person or animal, in the case of the sanctuary system, they had the scapegoat or the scapegoat, which carried away the sins of the whole camp. Mm-hmm. So here's an interesting verse for you to read. Um, Joshua 7.26. Joshua 7.26. We're talking about scapegoating. And can you punish one person in place of a whole community, which is what happened to the, uh, the scapegoat. Joshua 7.26, they piled up a great heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. That is why the place has been called the Valley of Trouble ever since. So the Lord was no longer angry. You get it? The Lord was no longer angry. Oh, because of that scapegoat, it changed the attitude of the Lord. Yes. In their minds. In their minds. Oh, mm. okay. Yeah. So Israel sins. They've been taking this stuff that they're not supposed to take. Mm-hmm. So they are alien. They know this. Mm-hmm. So they're guilty. They're running from their enemies. Um they go through the scapegoating and find out one of them who'd done it, mm-hmm. namely Aiken. Mm-hmm. He and his family are punished, and now they say, okay, God's no longer angry with us. Mm-hmm. What they're really saying is, 
we relieved now. We've done what we needed to do, mm -hmm. and the relationship is restored. So God's mind hadn't ch changed about them at all, but in their minds, his, his mind had changed so they could move ahead with confidence. Yeah. Interesting. So I want to conclude by just reading uh, a verse in Ezekiel 33. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? It's such a poignant uh, longing expressed in that verse. You know, why, why do you want to die? Why don't you turn to me? I'm the author of life. When you turn to the devil, he is the author of death. Mm -hmm. And uh, turn to me so that you can live emotionally, spiritually, and physically. So I, I, I'm happy to leave it there. Good. So there are many stories that we could talk about. Yes. And... Um, and so what if we put a list in the notes on this episode and people can choose different stories that is, are of interest to them that we could address. And they can send us an email uh, and, and respond to that list and then we can address some of those in future podcasts. I like that because there are just too many incidents uh, to try and cover all of them. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to do them all. Yeah. But we want to make sure we're doing ones that that people have pondered about yeah. and, and would like some Probably. insight. Because, uh, and, and, this, and this story is, is very fascinating. We, we just assume that God destroys them because they were heathen. They were, you know, not part of his people. And yet God loves them. He, they're his children as well. And, uh, and so by understanding this in a different way helps us again to align our understanding of God with the picture that Jesus had of God rather than what we have traditionally held. So I thought I'd end it, but um, John 10 verse 10 says this, the thief, Jesus referring to the devil, mm -hmm. who stole away our birthright. Mm -hmm. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, that's Jesus, have come to give them life, more abundant life. Yeah. You know, that verse is the greatest summary of these two uh, beings mm -hmm. who are in competition for our hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very um, concise summary yeah. of the, the two views. Let me end the podcast with a prayer. Sure. Dear God, we're happy to be in your presence and we are acutely aware of our lack of insight and our deafness and we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear as uh, you understand these stories. Thank you for your promise 
that we can come to you as Laodiceans and you will give us eyes off so that we can truly see you in all your wonder. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to contact us, you can at Rediscovering God on Facebook or Instagram, or send us an email to rediscoveringgod20 at gmail.com. We are encouraged to hear how this picture of God is making a difference for you. And if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple, you can leave a review or rate the podcast so that others will become more aware of a God that is love as revealed by Jesus Christ. Thank you.